Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I am joined now by Dr. Brian Fickert and Dr. Kelly Capic. They are uh, both professors at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and they offer up to us actually two books. One is called Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream, um, and then a companion book, which is a field guide to becoming whole, Principles for Poverty Alleviation Ministries. And so um, really this conversation emerges out of, for those of you who have a history of of reading in this area, um, when helping hurts. And so uh, Doctors Fickert and Capic, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for inviting us to be with you today. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so really, I feel like this is a conversation at the intersection of faith and politics and economics. Am I right in sort of locating the conversation in that space? And maybe Dr. Fickert will just direct that question to you. That's exactly correct. And, but in particular, we want to address our book to the church. Uh, we are both affiliated with the Chalmers Center at Covenant College, which is a church equipping organization. We want to equip churches to work more effectively amongst the poor. So we're speaking directly to the church. And we Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, the other thing is that we're, we're speaking to American Christians in general. As we unpack this, we're, we're concerned that there are, there are issues going on that are affecting not just poor people, but all of us, mm-hmm. not just the materially poor. So we're trying to address really the whole church, the American church in particular, uh, and the concern is not just for the materially poor. Okay, so that's a really interesting distinction, and let's just follow up on that question. Let's first of all define poverty and talk about why this is the primary issue uh, or why it is a primary issue of concern and then make this distinction here about poverty not just being about those who are materially poor. Great. Right. You know, the way that we define poverty determines the solutions that we use to alleviate poverty. And so often uh, we tend to define poverty in material terms. If you ask American Christians what is poverty, they will say it's a lack of housing, a lack of food, a lack of clothing. And certainly it is all of those things. But when we define poverty as simply a lack of material things, our solutions tend towards providing material things to people. And so what we try to get at in When Helping Hurts was that often those lack of material things are a symptom of something deeper, something far more profound, broken relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. And once you start to understand that material poverty is simply a symptom of that deeper relational poverty, you start to realize that there's a sense in which all of us are poor in a relational sense, in the sense that none of us are experiencing human flourishing in the way that God intended. And so that's the perspective that we're bringing to bear uh, in When Helping Hurts and also in this book, which is both the prequel and the sequel to When Helping Hurts. So again, I am talking with Drs. Brian Fickert and Dr. Kelly Capic, um, both serving at Covenant College uh, and when we talk about, when you talk about Western Christianity, and I think we have to actually define that because some of the things that you say about Western Christianity are, are going to be uh, difficult for some people to hear. 
And so let's define Western Christianity and then let's um, let's roam around a little bit in this subject matter area, um, because this is soil that I think really needs to be tilled in the American mind and heart. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and we can talk about it in different ways. But let's think about it in this in this way. Uh, we are believers. What can be difficult for us as believers, though, is to try and figure out what is culturally forming us and what is biblically forming us. And uh, we do have a particular concern that the American church has been influenced in, in their vision of the good life in ways we don't even realize. So even to link it with our earlier conversation, we often, and this includes me, when we've been involved with poverty alleviation concerns, without thinking about it, the goal is often you're materially poor, we want you to be middle, upper middle class Americans. <laughs> but part of what we explore in the book is all this research, including lots of research from non-Christians, shows there's a thing called the happiness study and all kinds of studies related. And, and actually, in our affluence, we've become less and less happy. So if the goal is to move poverty, you know, those who are materially poor and try and make them like us, and we're less and less happy, that's a problem. So part of our vision is to help. So, so we're trying to say it's not the American dream. Our goal is not to turn, you know, a, a materially poor neighborhood into a suburban neighborhood. Instead, our goal is to point to the Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. It's to point to the feast of being with God and God's people um, and, and, and to think about what this new creation that, uh, that Christ is the head of should look like and how we can taste that even now. Okay, so that and is a rat that's a radical departure from what most people have been raised to think and believe and imagine and envision. And I think you're absolutely right. I'm a I'm a kingdom big K advocate. Uh and so I'm uh I'm praying the Lord's prayer with the expectation that there is not only an opportunity but a responsibility uh to bear witness to kingdom big K principles. Um, to be an ambassador, an active ambassador of the kingdom of God and a representative of the king here and now, that things on earth might become even now more like they are in heaven. Now, ultimately, that's not going to totally come to pass until Jesus returns, and I understand that, but I have a responsibility to bear authentic witness to that kingdom and that king here and now in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. So I'm I'm with you. I'm for you. I also think this is a difficult uphill battle or really, really hard soil to tend in the American heart and mind. So talk with me about the challenges you're facing as you um, as you surface this conversation. You know, a lot of what we talk about, Carmen, in our book is the, the idea that the American church has tended to reduce the gospel to its legal dimensions. We, we, we tend to think that um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death. And, and so what Christ does is he comes, he dies on the cross, he saves us from our sins so our soul can go to heaven someday when we die. And that's all true. We affirm all of that. We affirm that, that every human being has a legal problem before a holy God, that Christ solves our legal problem for us. So you accept that good news and you embrace that good news. Then the alarm clock goes off on Monday morning. What are you supposed to do? And the problem is that the church has often not given a story, a way of living out life 
that explains what's supposed to happen from Monday through Saturday. And so we've all got our legal problems solved and we don't have a story for what's next. And the story that we need to embrace is the story of the kingdom of God, the story that Jesus Christ is making all things. All right, welcome back. Continuing my conversation now with uh, Drs. Brian Fickert and Kelly Capick. They are uh, the co-authors of actually uh, several books, but the one the one we're talking about today is Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. You guys were just about to teach us how to tell not just a better story, but the right story. And I think that in order to do that, we have to sort of unlearn what we have come to believe. And so... First of all, tell me what evangelical Gnosticism is, and um, and then give me a better story. Yeah, evangelical Gnosticism is a term that term that Daryl Miller, our, our dear friend, coined. But uh, the basic idea is this: Western civilization has taught uh, something called Western naturalism that that the, the world is fundamentally material in nature, and that human beings are material creatures. We're bodies, and, and as a result, human flourishing comes from having more stuff. And, and what the Western church has often done is sort of tacked on a soul to that body and kind of said, uh, there's this kind of body that holds the soul, and the soul is what really matters. And the soul is going to get beamed up for all eternity. And so this world doesn't really matter. What matters is our souls floating around on clouds playing harps for all eternity. And quite frankly, that's not even a very compelling picture of human flourishing. And, and, and similarly, we've reduced Christ to just the Lord of our spiritual lives. He's not the Lord of, of our job. He's not the Lord of our families. He's not the Lord of the economy. He's just the one who gets our souls beamed up. And so we've got to get out of that kind of dualism, that kind of body-spirit dualism, that kind of uh, uh, bifurcation that says the soul is what really matters and the material world doesn't, because the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ comes to die for the entire cosmos. Colossians chapter 1 says Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer and reconciler of all things in heaven and earth. And so his lordship extends over our souls, our bodies, the ground we walk on, our workplaces, sports, every last square inch of the cosmos is under his lordship. And that makes a difference for how we live and work. It's not just the American dream. There's a different way of being in the world that presses into God's definition of human flourishing, God's understanding of what the good life is. You know, it is not hard for me because I I wander around in the subject matter area of sort of the cultural concerns of the day. It is not hard for me to see the immediate application of what you're talking about. Um, if, if a person believes what you're saying and begins to operate out of the understanding that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is an affirmation that matter matters and yeah. that all things, every square inch belongs to him and all things Every part of not only who I am, but what I'm doing and what I'm in the world to do is under his sovereignty and his lordship, uh, not just eternally in heaven, but right now uh, as an ambassador of his kingdom. That has implications for not only how I live, but how I treat others, how I treat my own body, my understanding of whether or not my body is under my authority uh, and I have this bodily autonomy or under Christ's authority, how I would treat other people in terms of their bodily uh, autonomy as, you know, here I'm thinking about human trafficking. I'm thinking about the whole life conversation. Um, you you are, when you start tilling this soil and you start introducing us uh, to the real story, to the real redemptive narrative that, you know, that God writes over all of human history, 
Um, there's a there's a seismic shift that is possible not only in our culture but for the church globally to really move forward. Yeah, I listening to you talk, you get it. <laughs> I, I mean, you you totally get it. And so the seismic shift in some ways is radically different, but in other ways, we can put it simply: we're called to love God and neighbor. But what we're saying is about love. The question is. How do you love well and how do you love like God? And for some reason, we have often made it seem like God only loves our souls. But what's clear in the Bible is God's the creator of everything and he loves what he's made and he's not embarrassed. So when you bring up the incarnation that the son of God becomes a real human being with flesh and blood, that is God's great affirmation of creation. And and Jesus, his identifier as Messiah is he heals the lame. The blind see the you know, and and the good news the evangelion is preached to the poor. It is holistic. So we're trying to say, let's remember our Creator is our Recreator, and when we love God, when we love others, when we love the earth, even when we rightly love ourselves, we need to do it holistically: the mind, the will, the affections, and the body. And we're worried we've chosen between those, and. We're not trying to belittle the soul. We're not trying to belittle the mind. We're trying to be more holistic. Um, and, and that is part of the good news. That, that helps make the good news good. If you have a poor person and you say, well, when you die, everything's going to be fine. But for the next 30 years, it's just going to be miserable. That's not actually that great news. It's, in, it's, it's an incomplete story. It's not loving well. Carmen, I want to interject something here as well. You're here is talking about the tight integration between the body and the soul, but we also want to emphasize that the human being is highly relational as well. Mm. So in the book, we talk about the human being as being a body-soul relational creature, because uh, once we get the body and soul integrated in our conceptual framework, we could still approach this as sort of highly individualistic integrated body-soul creatures. And that misses the essence of the human being. We are body, soul, relational creatures. And and that has profound implications for every aspect of our lives, and and including our work with the poor. Uh, We tend towards uh, saying to people um, who are poor, we want you to get a job. We're going to minister. We we might even say we might want to minister to your body and soul as we try to help you get a job but we're still treating them as individuals. We've got to to, uh, include them in deep, loving community that forms the platform, if you will, to launch them into the search for a job. And so we've got to get away from the highly individualistic framework of Western civilization and the evangelical church into a deeply relational framework for thinking what a human being is. So, gentlemen, I think we should continue this conversation. Um, I think there's a lot more soil to till here. Um, we're out of time for today, but I'm wondering um, if we can if we can have um, more of these conversations going forward because I think this is soil that um, you know you can't just till this once. We're going to have to replant this seed, and we're going to have to because uh, yeah. it's going to fall on different soil every time we talk about it. So, is this a conversation we can continue to have? We hope so. We, we hope so. <laughs> we need it, and the church needs it, and, and where we, our country needs it. You know, yeah, Carmen, absolutely. We, you know, I just want to add that you, you know some of what we're saying 
uh, probably sounds threatening to people. It sounds like we're questioning a lot of things, and, and we are, and it is threatening to some degree. But I also want the audience to know this is extremely liberating. Uh, I, I myself have been deeply impacted by some of the lies of evangelical Gnosticism. And as, as I'm coming to understand what a human being is in a fuller sense, what human flourishing looks like in a, in a, uh, a more, fu more fully orbed sense, I'm finding it to be extremely liberating. I can feel it. I can feel it in my nerve endings. I can feel it in every scrunch of my own body and personhood. And so there's good news here for the yeah. poor and for all of us. Yeah, for those who are uh, poor in ways that we've always recognized, and for those of us whose poverty has been different all along, we just haven't seen it. So this exactly. is Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. Uh, thank you so much, Brian Fickert and, uh, and Kelly Capick. Thank you so much for being with us here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, so next up, Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine is going to be back. He and I like to talk about international headlines and bring the mind of Christ to bear on those things. Um, I think I'm going to ask him about Boris Johnson, the new prime minister of Britain, because, man, isn't he an interesting character? Um, and we will talk about that. Uh, I also know that there are many of you interested in David's take on uh, how the United Kingdom is responding to the Iranian seizure of a British tanker. Uh, and what progress might be being made there. I think I'll also ask him about uh, the escalation in, in the protests in Hong Kong over the weekend um, and just sort of his take on that. So that's where I'm headed with David Aikman next here on Mornings with Carmen. My name is Bond, James Bond. All right, that must mean that Dr. David Aikman is with us from Godspeed Magazine. Good. Sir, good morning or good afternoon. Good morning to you, Carmen. Very nice to be with you again. So the midday meal is called what? Well, uh, I probably give away my background if I say what I call it. I call it lunch. Well, amen. Uh, but please, but where you are living right now, the midday meal is not called lunch. They, some of them call it dinner. And um, then and then at five o'clock, at five o'clock, people eat what? Well, they eat what they call tea. But tea. It's not, it's not tea time in the English man where you would have crumpets and toast and cake and tea and so on. It's actually the evening meal. So you barely hiccup your way through the lunch before you're immediately faced with the second main meal of the day, which is they call tea, but I call a premature dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to start there because I just so appreciate your willingness to come and join us. It's early in the day, obviously, here in uh, the United States of America. And it's already the middle of the day where you are, and I just appreciate that you're already far more up to speed on the news of the day than any of us could hope to be on this side of the pond. So um, thank you in advance. I just want to lead with a question about Boris Johnson. Um, and, you know, we are uh, – he's fascinating. I mean, I think we're already fascinated by him as the new prime minister. Um, and he is kind of making a tour – of um of the regions and nations that are in the UK so 
He's been he's been to Scotland, yes, and Wales, and he's going to talk to the people in Northern Ireland because that kind of sounds like a mess. What's uh, what's your take on sort of how he's doing so far? He's been at this a week, and then bring us up to date. Well, I think he's done quite well, actually, as far as an incoming prime minister can do in a week, um, dealing with the fact that he's got a fractious community of nations surrounding England itself. You've got Scotland, whose first minister, which in effect is the prime minister, although that's not the title, she's absolutely determined to stay in the EU. And she's threatened that if Boris Johnson comes out without deal, which she said is very likely to happen by the deadline of October 30th, October 31st, um, then she will bring the Scottish out of the United Kingdom. And she said, menacingly, I think, yesterday, um, Boris Johnson may be the last prime minister of the United Kingdom, meaning Mm. it won't be united if she has her way. Now, Boris Johnson wants to, uh, in his own words, renew the ties that bind, um, you know, recognizing that the United Kingdom is far more, you know, prosperous and effective as a United Kingdom than it would be if if England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland were not uh, united in their relationships with one another. But Northern Ireland presents an interesting, uh, a little interesting caveat in this conversation. And I think we need to be reminded about the border conversation there and why a no-deal Brexit would would really be challenging when it comes to Northern Ireland. Well, the, the whole principle of the Northern Ireland situation is that after the troubles between Catholics and Protestants that started 40 years ago, they came to a very successful agreement called the Good Friday Agreement of, I think, 1998-1999, which guaranteed that the people of Northern Ireland could choose to be citizens either of the UK or of the Irish Republic. And, And there was a devolved coalition government between the Sinn Féin, who were the nationalists, and the... Uh, Unionist Party, who were very much in favour of continuing with the UK. Well, the deal of of leaving the EU to the UK was dictated by the people in Brussels, by Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator. There has to be a backstop so that the Good Friday Agreement remains safe that people can cross the border without any impediment from Northern Ireland to to the Irish Republic and vice versa. Now, nobody wants to change that. The British have said, we are not going to build a blockhouse or, or, a, or a customs point. So who's worrying? But the EU and the Irish are very frantic that regulatory rules between importing and exporting of produce from the Republic and Northern Ireland could go really get into trouble unless they have this backstop forcing the Northern Irish 
to stay within some kind of EU jurisdiction for an indefinite number of years. And that's something Boris Johnson and many Brexiteers say they absolutely will not accept. All right, let's, um, David, you and I take a quick break. When we come back, um, let's talk about what the ongoing, I, I don't even, I don't have a good word for it yet, the the ongoing cantankerousness between the United Kingdom and Iran related to tankers. Can we do that? Like, what's what's going on? Will you bring us up to date and help us understand what's happening there? I, I will, but could we also discuss Hong Kong if, that, if there's yeah. enough time? Yeah, let's do because Hong Kong. Well, when we come when we come back, let's do Hong Kong first, and then uh, and then we'll just touch on the uh, the Iranian situation after that. That sounds perfect. All right, hey, uh, David Aikman. Yeah, absolutely. David Aikman and I will be right back, and we're going to be talking Hong Kong. Have you ever noticed that teens who are irresponsible and unmotivated often have parents who are just the opposite? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Hardworking moms and dads often have a tendency to be overly responsible for their children's lives. Rather than letting their kids take care of their own problems, mom and dad immediately volunteer to step in and help. But there's one thing these parents don't realize. The more that mom and dad do for their child, the less their child has to do for himself. So has your teen figured out that he can be immature and irresponsible as long as mom and dad are there to rescue him? It's time to let go, step back, and give him the space he needs to foster independence. Parenting Teens isn't for the faint of heart. Learn about Mark's upcoming events and check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. So I'm back with Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine. Let's talk about Hong Kong. Over the weekend, David, we um, we observed again um, the police in Hong Kong uh, actually shooting at protesters, um, tear gas. And um, and we also have continued to see what we uh, what we recognize as Beijing's sort of uh, stirring up and fomenting of things. Um, bringing people to act in violence against the protesters. So your, um, your, your take on what's happening there and what we need to know. Well, this has been the eighth weekend, this recently past weekend, of demonstrations, demonstrators in Hong Kong demanding a change in the way that the community is governed under Chinese control. And the people of Hong Kong overwhelmingly want the system to continue under the original rubric of one country, two systems. In other words, they acknowledge that China has sovereignty, but they say that the, the agreement states that Hong Kong will maintain its legal and political system unchanged for at least 50 years from the handover back in 1997. And now the Chinese government has become very, um, I would say, malevolent in, first of all, stirring up vigilantes to begin beating up protesters. And part of the protest yesterday was to demand the police to protect the protesters from that kind of vigilante violence. And part of it was just a, an overwhelming sense 
of rejection of the idea that Hong Kong would be inexorably sucked into the political structure of the People's Republic of China run by the Communist Party. The people of Hong Kong have enough experience with friends and neighbors and relatives in China to know that they don't want to live under that system. And I think China is going to become more and more brittle in its reaction against the protests. Well, I, I do too. And when you say more brittle, um, you know, I I think that what we're talking about is, um, you know, bad things happening, right? I mean, when we say brittle, we're talking yeah. about people being at the breaking point, and we talk about um, a regime like that in Beijing becoming brittle. Right. We are talking about re- very serious human right violations. Oh, yes, completely. And, and it potentially the same kind of suppression of demonstrations occurred in uh, 1989 in Beijing with, at the time of the Beijing massacre. It's a, it could be the same thing all over again. And so, David, when we, you know, when we as as Christians and people who um, are, you know, Western in our thinking about the way things should work, we think that um, protest should be an option for everyone. We do not think of that as something that only exists, um, you know, where I could petition the government or I could uh, go out with my little homemade, handmade uh, protest sign with something written on it, and I could stomp around in front of the Supreme Court, or I could stomp around in front of the, you know, uh, whatever it is in my own little town where, you know, the courthouse or city hall or whatever, or I could take to the streets um, as long as I am, you know, sort of obeying the law as I do that. The challenge is that under Chinese law, that's not legal. No, it's completely illegal. And not only that, it's they regard it as anti-cultural. They think that the Chinese Communist Party are the heirs of the original Chinese controllers of the political system going back 2,000 words, 2,000 years. And that was a brutal, very violent sort of criminal system of control. And that's what the Chinese Communist Party wants to impose over Hong Kong. So I don't know if um, uh, if you're familiar with this very, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a small release indie film, but it's called Farewell, The Farewell. And it follows a Chinese family. Um, and I, I'm, I'm lifting it up now because I talked on Friday on the program with Adam Holtz about this film. And one of the observations that Adam made was, you know, part of the challenge for Americans is we do not understand just how different the, the worldview is of people in China. And, um, and, the, and, and the farewell does a really nice job, um, you know, basically saying, hey, look, in America, the individual matters. In America, um, the, the ideas of the individual or the value of the individual matters. Here in China, that is not what matters. And so I think that when we, um, when we try to understand what's happening in Hong Kong, we have to go back to a conversation that you and I had several weeks ago um, about, you know, the people who are in Hong Kong, they are Western thinkers because they were British uh, as a colony for a really long time. Um, and now they're being ruled by a communist regime, which is not only non-Western, it's expressly non-Christian. That's right. And they, the people of Hong Kong got used to 
uh, English common law with independent judges, an open legal system, an open press. There's no such thing as a First or Second Amendment, certainly not a Second Amendment in Hong Kong. But, but there is in practice an acceptance of the idea of opposition to the government through the media. And that is completely rejected by the Chinese Communist Party. Hmm. All right, I'm just making a little note there that English common law is not common everywhere. Like, right? We, right. we in America, I mean, we, we are um, the children of England in this way, in, in, which, in, in a way that I think not only do we not want to deny, but we want to really embrace. That's right. Yeah, and of course, the Chinese Communist Party regards that as the ultimate cultural challenge. And of course, they're blaming the Americans for stirring up the people of Hong Kong, which the United States hasn't had anything to do with. But the common misapprehension in the United States by many China observers was, well, China will become prosperous, and then they'll become just like us. They'll just become normal. Sorry, it didn't work that way. They never wanted to become like the United States and like other democratic political societies. So they are definitely intent in, on imposing their own autocracy on any place they have control over. Mm. Um, David, we will continue to, I am sure, return to this particular subject because you and I both see what's happening in Hong Kong as not only a long-term conversation, um, but potentially very, very volatile. And so I know you join me in praying for the folks uh, who are in Hong Kong. um, And just, it's it's hard to imagine at this point how this works itself out positively. It's, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's, there's a very slim chance of this evolving peacefully into a situation where both sides get something out of it. It's unfortunate it looks much more likely to come to a head at some point. Mm-hmm. And as you have noted, the people in Hong Kong don't have uh, a Second Amendment right. So as that comes to a head... The only, I mean, in terms of the the police power, the police state, all of the that power exists on China's side, on Beijing's side. That's right. Yeah. It's just stunning, yeah. David. Um, thank you as always for helping us understand what's happening uh, internationally. I'm sure okay. that um we'll still be talking about Iran next week, so we can just you and I can okay. just uh, put that on the calendar. Yeah. All right. Hey, yeah. thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Carmen. God Have bless. lovely tea. Thank you. All right. Lovely tea. All right. Um, All right. So you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'll be right back. All right. So I don't know what's on your agenda today. Uh, Mine is quite full today. Prayers appreciated. Tomorrow morning, uh, my stepson is going to have surgery. Now, this happens on a fairly regular rhythm in our family. So... Uh, it's not as if it's totally uh, out there and unusual for us to be dealing with this. But um, I always appreciate prayers as we do the pre-op uh, tonight, tomorrow, and um, and and then go into surgery tomorrow morning. While you and I are on the air, uh, Matthew will be headed into surgery tomorrow. So prayers appreciated. And then after the show tomorrow, I'll go and 
uh, sit and and await the outcome, which we uh, absolutely anticipate being positive. But pray with me for Dr. Kelly. Pray with me for the team at Vanderbilt. Uh, and pray uh, with me for Matthew, that he would be filled with the peace which passes all understanding, that his body would uh, cooperate in all the ways that are right necessary to bring healing. So uh, there you go. That's uh, it's probably uh, top of my heart list today in terms of what's what's concerning me. What's on the top of your heart list today, and how can we be praying for you? You can always text us your prayers at 877-933-2484 or email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. I'm always open to receiving your prayer requests, and just know this, uh, even if I don't mention it on air, I'm certainly praying for you and with you as you go about your day. Hey, have a great day, and God bless. So there's a lot uh, happening in the world that would draw our attention, and I know that as you are preparing to enter into this Monday um, there's there's just a lot on your personal plate as well. And so I think that um, for those of us who care deeply for one another, we just need to recognize that, you know, people are carrying a lot today. And, um, and so let us be gentle with one another. Let us be, as Scripture instructs, let us be quick to listen and slow to speak, and certainly slow to anger. How might your day be different if... Um, If you just, in terms of snap judgments and in terms of letting anger be the first response, what if you just said, you know what, I'm going to be done with that, and today I am going to live as a new creation, uh, and I am going to have the spirit of the living God be the governor over not only my mind, where each thought is going to be brought into captivity to Christ, um, but it's really going to be the governor of my tongue, I don't know. I used to have a governor on my car. I don't really have any idea how that works. Maybe there's like a governor on a golf cart. I'm pretty sure there is a governor on a golf cart. And it keeps you from being able to go too fast, right? So maybe um, when we think about the Holy Spirit being a governor on our tongue, um, it's going to keep us from going too fast and instead operate at the patience um, that's required that we would speak with wisdom into the issues of this day. Maybe just say a prayer in your heart and mind before you speak a word on a particular subject. So that was my encouragement today. um, And I want everybody to be praying for me, even as I am praying for you. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.